there are worlds between our own, and from these worlds there are written histories, both ancient and modern. To read of these testaments scrawled in hidden places and on other things, you must fix your eyes uncomfortably within you, and if successful, your gaze will unlock the door behind raw imagination and meet the manuscript of innumerable folios known as the Dark Darkness. Hello, I'm Sharkchild, and this is The Dark Verse. Short stories of occult, metaphysical, and fantastical horror that will follow you to the visions of your sleep. Hello, everyone. Here we are with the second episode of The Dark Verse in 2017. I must apologize for the delay in getting this episode and story done. But unfortunately, this year started off very eventful and very hectic. I started a new job at the beginning of January. Basically, right after I finished the last episode of The Dark First, I, I started a new job. And this is my second full-time job that I've had in my lifetime. I was at one job for a full 10 years before I moved on to this one. So it was a big step. And then also in starting this job, I also needed to put my son into daycare. So that was a first. And so there was a lot going on. And then of course, the second week in, he got sick and then I got sick. And so there you have it. A leads to B and B leads to C and there's all this stuff going on. But uh, you might actually still be able to hear some of the uh, congestion in my voice. But Anyhow, I pushed through. I needed to get this done, and so I did. Um, but yeah, so I apologize for the delay. Thankfully, I'm kind of, uh, I've kind of gotten into a routine again and back into a rhythm, and hopefully, I can carry that through as we go through 2017 because there's a lot of cool and great things to be done this year. Um, with that said, I have, I believe, the longest story that I have written for the Darkverse series. So that's one very sweet fact about um, the delay or, you know, the payoff for your patience is that this story is actually pretty darn long um, compared to my other episodes. So, uh, and then going into that, just to share a little inspiration behind the story, this story kind of feeds off of um, this concept of it's been in a lot of movies and and even in a Netflix series it's it's this concept of people having to fulfill some sadistic overlords crude tasks or face dire consequences so there's this movie called 12 sins where a guy wins incrementally more money by completing these insane tasks that just leave you on the edge of your seat and there's a movie called would you rather basically where you have to choose one of two evils (laughs) to move forward and not die basically um and then there is also an episode in the netflix series black mirror and i believe the episode is called shut up and dance it's and it's the exact same concept where 
these people are blackmailed because they've done some pretty shady things and and the the evidence of their shadiness will be revealed or sent out to the world if they do not um, complete these these ridiculous requirements uh, and and uh, tasks. So uh, this is my story that is inspired off of those things. So this is the dark verse version of that concept. This is episode one hundred and three of the dark verse, and it is entitled not worth reading. I stepped out of work for lunch and walked to the nearby delicatessen. I picked up a corned beef sandwich on rye bread and sat outside at one of the few cast iron tables available to enjoy it. The afternoon was not the warmest of days, but the sun provided a convivial blanket of illumination that made it feel warmer than it actually was. Keeping to myself, I intermixed the consumption of both food and the crossword puzzle I brought with me. About halfway through my interlude, I was interrupted. What garbage, the man who sat at the table beside mine said aloud to himself. This has to be a joke. The man wore a brown suit and black, horn-rimmed glasses. His hair was disheveled and his middle-aged face was covered in wrinkles. He took one more bite of his partially eaten sandwich, wiped his mouth with a napkin, and half-dropped, half-placed the small hardcover book he was looking at onto the table before standing up and departing, leaving the item amongst the remnants of his lunch as if it, too, were dispensable. Curiosity crept into my being. For a few moments I pondered about the contents of the discarded item while deciding whether or not I should submit myself to the examination of it. If the book was something awful, I wanted to know what that awful was, so my verdict for acquiring the publication was implemented. I looked around briefly and then took a step out, lunged my body, outstretched my hand, and grabbed the book from the man's table without fully standing up. Just as I fell back into my chair, a worker from the delicatessen came outside and cleared the man's table. What was not discernible by distance became jarringly clear when I held the book before me. Its cover was a union of numerous eyes, their outermost membranes, the scleras and pupils, carved from the rest of the organs and then flattened, stretched, and sewn together like patchwork. My fingers pressed in on them and felt their texture. There was a coating and treatment spread over the eyes to preserve them, but there was no other observation disallowing my mind to ratify these eyes as real. As my conclusion came as to what I saw and felt, I dropped the book with the same shock as identifying a snake slithering at my feet. The top piece of bread of my sandwich, some meat, and shreds of lettuce cascaded outward as the book smashed into them. The plate clanked in union. Are you all right, sir? The delicatessen worker asked, alerted to my discordant activity. I nodded him off. Upon the table, I read the book's title, an oddly designed collection of letters burned into the quilt of eyes. W-E-E-S-E-E-E, 
we see. The macabre tome was as enthralling as anything I had ever laid my eyes on, and, despite my initial fright, I was eager to turn to the first page. So I did. There were no ornamented end papers or inner title page. Only but a few words greeted my eyes on that initial page. Eat this page before you return to work or you die. If you turn this page and do not tear the page, you die. At first I laughed and scoffed at what I saw, my top lip rising on one side while I shook my head. But as I went to turn the page, to disobey its warning, I found myself filled with uneasiness. I could not outright bring myself to confidently judge the book as illegitimate. The actuality of the statement being carried out was preposterous, but the mention of the word work turned this simple literary expedition into an unsettling inner debate of happenstance versus calculation, life versus peculiar death. This book called out a piece of my personal world on a specific personal timeline, and so its words became more than just an arbitrary threat of fictitious fun. Was it simply chance that this author targeted people like me, or was it something more? My mind spun. After I sifted through the turmoil of my thoughts, I convinced myself to defy the book's mad warnings and peruse its contents at my leisure. However, still plagued by unsureness, my movement was slow. Just as my deliberate fingers fumbled with the pages to obtain the edge of the topmost leaf, an ambulance's blaring sirens rung in my ear as it tore down the street past me. My eyes followed it to the destination not but a block away. I released the page in my grip and closed the eyebook, postponing my journey into its deranged domain. I gathered my things and departed in the direction of the emergency vehicle. As I approached, someone was already being loaded into the ambulance. I inquired the gathered witnesses on what had occurred and was told that a man's eyes had burst out of his face while blood spewed horribly and savagely from the orifices and that there was no likelihood that the man had survived. One woman said, In seconds, all of the blood within him came out his eyes. It was the most horrifying thing I've ever seen. Other than one police officer at the scene who had arrived just before me and had his hands full interviewing bystanders, there was no one there yet to block off the area of the incident. I got as close as I could and was able to see the canvas of crimson that cloaked the concrete. Nearly hidden within the red, to my grave dismay, was a pair of black, horn-rimmed glasses, almost entirely painted in gore. My heart plummeted into my gut, and my breathing intensified. An invisible nail of terror drove through my brain. I looked down at the eye book in my possession, and trembled. Other officers then arrived who corralled the bystanders and sectioned everything off with yellow tape. I immediately retreated from this death-ridden stage, and made my way towards my car back on the other side of the block. It was the best place to attain privacy and figure out my next course of action. As I walked, I deliberated on the revelation that now hung like a swinging scythe above my head. 
The book had undeniably gouged and exsanguinated this man, a clear picture of my future if I did not submit myself as a myrmidon, a slave, to its precarious mandates. There was no room to debate the abilities of this book to rewrite itself at will, and no room to doubt the swift execution of its wrath. When I arrived at my car, I got into the back seat, where the windows were tinted, and placed the eye-book before me on my lap. I carefully flipped back the front cover, revealing again the two lines of text previously ingrained into my mind. Despite the horror show that would be the end of my life if I made a mistake, I acknowledged that the book did give me two choices. The first being to do as it said and eat the page. The second being to indirectly accommodate its requirement by never returning to work. The allure of the second option was strong, but my reputation would have been tarnished and my family would have been pitted against insurmountable financial adversaries. I had to eat the page and play into the book's demands. I carefully tore the page from its binding, diligently focusing on what lie beneath more so than on the task that awaited me following the retrieval. The words of the second page reiterated that I would be following the book's commands like a dog on a leash if I cherished my life. If you turn this page before you eat the first page, you die. If you do not turn this page immediately after you eat the first page, you die. Swallowing the piece of paper was a tedious task, made even more difficult by the stress and strangeness of its circumstances. I tore the page into numerous segments that I wadded up before swallowing one at a time but it would have been helpful to have had food or sauce to accompany the ingestions. The paper had a musty aroma and stale flavor that burrowed up and into my nasal cavity where it overwhelmed me, causing me to cough and gag violently between the consumption of each portion. When I had completed the undertaking and gotten through the last bout of hacking, I breathed a huge sigh of relief, letting my mind relax and wander. Only a moment went by before I horridly snapped alert with the book's conditions, piercing my brain like an alarm clock, depriving me of serenity. I turned the second page of the iBook and read its contents. Remove one of your fingernails without the aid of a tool before the sun sets today, or you die. If you use anything beyond the ability of your own body, or if you do not remove a nail completely, you die. If you turn this page before you remove a fingernail, you die. If you do not turn this page immediately after you remove a fingernail, you die. Ah! I screamed aloud. I slammed the book shut, threw it to the floor of the car, and started ramming my head repeatedly into the headrest in front of me. My thoughts went into a vision of the man in the brown suit, his eyes bursting out of their sockets and blood shooting forward like geysers from the empty caverns. My blood boiled. When I tired, my rage plummeted into fear. There was no undoing what I had begun. There was no going back to enjoying a sandwich and crossword puzzle on a delicatessen's cast-iron table. 
I knew that with each turn of the page, the deeds of my certain doing would grow more insidious. My doom and salvation rested in that book. Tears started falling from my eyes. I had to get back to work, but I had no intentions of staying there for the rest of the afternoon while the dread of fulfilling the book's ominous task haunted me. I collected myself, went into the office, and told my boss that I was feeling terrible. The sight of me most likely gave off no less than that truth. My boss let me off without any trouble, and I drove straight home. When I got there, I was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. I was anxious. I was panicked. My mind was slipping into a haze of sporadic daydreams and chaotic thoughts as it made its own independent attempts at retreating from the situation. I immediately implored the one remedy that could assist me with this devilish endeavor. Alcohol. I took down three huge swigs of whiskey. Despite the hampering of peak acuity, I would have a much higher chance of success in this state rather than dealing with the entanglement of my distraught faculties in my previous condition. There was about one hour for me to complete the deed of removing my fingernail before my children got back from school. The last thing I wanted was for them to witness any aspect of this madness. The objective was not just hard, it was, given the method by which I must complete it, horrifyingly hard. So I needed to act now and think later. To stimulate the production of adrenaline and psych myself up, I ran around the house hollering and growling. I hit my head against walls, I punched the walls, and slapped myself. And then... Quickly, without thinking, like jumping headstrong into a cold lake without first testing its chill, I placed my lower teeth beneath the end of the nail on my left hand's middle finger and began using the teeth like a crowbar to leverage it up and off. It was not a swift event. It took a determination that transcended agony and supreme discomfort. I had to release a beast within that cared only about survival. I had to become a savage. Only with a ravaging ferociousness was I able to affect the nail and eventually rip it from its hold. Blood poured generously from the wound and my consciousness feigned while I stood zombified in the middle of my home with an excavated fingernail sticking to the side of my face in crimson. My days continued until the requirements of the eye-book struck me like a whip. I stumbled to where I had set the book down, exuding blood along my trail, opened the book to the proper location, and turned the necessary page while staining the cover, sides, and pages of the book with additional red drippage. The next task violated my essence and required me to step out of the boundary of the most sacred role, parentship. These were the words. Using this page, give your children a paper cut on their faces before the sun rises tomorrow, or you die. Each paper cut must draw blood, or you die. If you turn this page and do not tear the page, you die. I screamed harder and louder than I had before in the car, my voice screeching at the pinnacle of its thrust. I ripped the page from the book, revealing the next page's text.
If you turn this page before you complete the task, you die. If you do not turn this page immediately after you complete the task, you die. I was about to erupt into an even more hysteric frenzy when I heard the deadbolt on the front door unlock. My children were home. I dashed for the bathroom in the master bedroom to quickly hide myself and clean up. Blood still flowed from my finger. What happened here, my teenage eldest daughter set out into the house upon witnessing the flurry of blood. Morgan, are you all right? she shouted using my first name like she always did. There's blood everywhere. Morgan, where are you? I'll be right there, I yelled back in a shaky, intoxicated voice as I flushed the loose fingernail down the toilet. The trauma of my actions and the influence of the alcohol dominated my nerves and senses. I dressed my finger wound and changed my clothes. The blood around my mouth was the hardest to scrub off. I then hid the book in its loose page under the bed and went to greet my children. I had an 18-year-old daughter, a 9-year-old son, and a 7-year-old daughter. The oldest was the chauffeur for the other two, bringing them and picking them up from school, which a single parent could not appreciate enough. When I exited the bedroom, I explained to my children that I had severely cut my finger and I had just been cleaning myself up. I could tell that they knew I was hiding something, but there was truly blood, which meant I had certainly injured myself, so they did not press any further for a more in-depth explanation. As I looked at each of their faces, the book's blasphemous request cursed my thoughts. I felt like a monster and knew I still needed to become one. After I cleaned what I could of the blood throughout the house, I slogged through the rest of the afternoon and evening, spending most of my time on the couch with the actions ahead of me chained to my soul. Even so, the hours went by too fast, heralding in the evil that would manifest through my hands. I waited until all of my children were asleep to perform the ungodly acts the iBook forced upon me. To make sure my face was concealed, so that by some fortune I could parry off the blame of the incidents, I tied a bandana around my nose and mouth, and put an old baseball hat the children had never seen on my head, bringing the rim down just above my eyes. I decided to start from youngest to oldest, and that, to not get caught, I needed to get the deeds done as quickly as possible once begun. I stood in the darkness for what seemed like ages outside the bedroom that my little girl and little boy shared. Exhaustion, fear, anger, distress, and paranoia all swirled together within me. I felt like a ghost, like my life had already been lost, and I was damned to an eternity of this hell-raising nightmare. I knew that another task awaited me upon completing this one, and I hated it. It stirred within me the vilest of scorn. Quietly, I entered the room. I walked to the side of my daughter's bed first and held the page of the eye book in my right hand just over her left cheek while I hovered my left hand over her forehead. At the same moment, I both held her head steady and sliced her cheek with the paper. 
With haste as my slave, I bolted to my son and repeated the act, leaving the room against the heart and spirit-shattering screams of my youngest children. Then I darted straight into my oldest daughter's room and replicated the horror one last time. Leaving my children to cope alone with the wounds of their phantom attacker, I grabbed up the eyebook, flipped to the necessary page while I raced to my car, got in, and drove off. There was no way I could remain after I had executed such nefariousness. I pulled off to the side of the road a couple blocks away and read the contents of the revealed page. You missed a child. But you get one more chance. Zeno Muxar has blessed you. Complete the task before the morning, or you die. If you turn this page before you complete the task, you die. If you do not turn this page immediately after you complete the task, you die. I did have another child, a son, older than the others, who lived three hours away. He left the house several years back, we were not on good terms, so I rarely saw him. Only my eldest daughter had any consistent contact with him. She was able to give me an address in the event I ever needed it, but she refused to give me his phone number. I was so afflicted and stupefied by my servitude to the book that I did not even think about him being included in the scope of the demand. For a third time, I screamed in loathing and pure mental anguish. Then I drove off towards my son, whose address, over many seasons of longing and regret, was ingrained within my memory. When I got to my son's apartment, I pounded on the door. His roommate opened it and I immediately forced my way in. The roommate tried to stop me, but I flung her to the ground against a coffee table. There were only two bedrooms and one was open and empty, so I knew where my son was. I opened the door to the enclosed bedroom and walked straight in to where he still slept, placed a hand on his head, and swiped the page of the eyebook swiftly across his cheek. My son instantly awoke in shock, but I had already turned from him and was exiting his room. I walked straight out of the apartment, again having to shove my son's roommate to the side. I got back into the car and drove off as hastily as I could. My son came running out of the apartment in pursuit of me, but I was already accelerating away by the time I saw him get to the street. Whether or not he could recognize my car at that distance, I did not know. While driving, I turned the iBook to its proper page. After I had covered several miles, I pulled to the side of a low-trafficked road and read the words. Rip all of the hair from your head by the time you go home, or you die. If you use anything beyond the ability of your own body, or if you do not remove all of your head hair completely at the roots, you die. If you turn this page before you rip all of your head hair out, you die. If you do not turn this page immediately after you rip all of your head hair out, you die. Once more, there was an indirect choice implicated within the text of the iBook's conditions, a way out. If I no longer wished to be a helpless puppet of malevolence's control, I could abandon my home and never return. But that also meant that I would have to abandon my children. 
In restrained internal animosity, I firmly pressed closed the bloody eye book and set it down beside me on the front passenger seat of the car. Then I slid open the mirror on the back of the driver's side visor. While staring at myself, I started pulling on my hair with maniacal might. With each pull, some hair came out, but not enough to timely progress to the end goal. I continued to pull with both hands, and with each pull, a little more hair came out. Two hours later, after extreme pain and mind-numbing discomfort, my head was covered in red dots and lesions. There were several locations on my head where flesh as well as hair was ripped from its hold. Voided of emotion, I retrieved the eyebook and turned it to the next page. This was what it read. Zedomuxar has one last obligation for you. Eat a human infant's brain and heart by tomorrow or you die. If you turn this page before you eat a human infant's brain and heart, you die. If you turn this page immediately or any time after you eat a human infant's brain and heart, you die. Give this book to someone else immediately after you eat a human infant's brain and heart, or you die. Following the words was an illustrated portrait labeled with the annotation, Zedomuxar Abstricticus. The portrait was of a wrinkled, middle-aged man with disheveled hair in a suit wearing horn-rimmed glasses, and below the notation was a quote, No matter what you do, there is always death. That concludes episode 103 of The Dark Verse. You can listen to and or download all of the past episodes on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on thedarkverse.com, or at patreon.com slash thedarkverse. And at that last location on Patreon, you can also become a patron of The Dark Verse and support it financially, monthly, and receive a lot of kudos from me because I would greatly appreciate it if you did that. And that's that. Uh, Hopefully I'll get a new story out here pretty soon. And other than that, I'll catch you then. All stories on the Dark Verse are the sole property of Shark Child and cannot be used for distribution, publication, or monetary gain without his written consent. Sleep deeply and remember to love.